0: Welcome back to WrestleRant Radio for Thursday, August 17th, 2023. I am Graham G.S. Matthews. Hope you guys are doing well and having a great week so far. One of those weeks where I'll be flying solo without Mr. Marcel. We had some of their work commitments to attend to, so... Going at it alone here today. Still, though, ton to talk about from WWE, AEW, reviews of Raw and Dynamite here on the show today. Talking about the build to All In. Has it lived up to the hype? Talking about the CM Punk drama from over the weekend, which I did not get into in my collision review last weekend on the YouTube channel. So more on that here on the show today. And the latest on Lacey Evans, who is apparently now gone from WWE. We'll be starting off with that here on the show today and so much more. If you want to support the show, you could do so. WrestleRant.com, WrestleRantRadio.com iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Google Podcast, Podbean, Amazon Music, and Pandora. Rate the show, review the show, subscribe to the show. Never miss a new episode every single Thursday. I think Stitcher is actually being removed. Uh, I'll have to take that out of the lineup when I'm plugging all the podcasts and platforms that the show appears on. I think Stitcher is actually shutting down at the end of the month, so you can check out the show on Stitcher for the rest of the month of August. But beyond that, check out the other platforms that I mentioned just a moment ago. Uh, like I said, a lot to get into here today. We'll start off with the Lacey Evans talk from earlier this week. It wasn't exactly not. A, it's not a massive, massive story. There really wasn't a lot of breaking news this week in the world of wrestling beyond the CM Punk drama, which I'll address in the AEW section of the show here today, a little bit later on. Lacey Evans, though, her contract apparently expiring earlier this week and now apparently gone from WWE. Uh, Like I said, not exactly a massive story when it was first looking like this would be the case. She had tweeted, I think, on Monday, oh, when the clock strikes midnight, I'm out of here. She had posted a GIF indicating that her contract was expiring that night at midnight, and no one knew exactly what was going on. I wasn't on X Twitter, whatever the hell you want to call it. While Raw was going on, so I didn't see it when she tweeted it. Um, that being said, though, it kind of became clear by the next day that she was indeed gone from WWE. Uh, Meltzer confirmed it. WWE didn't outright confirm it with a statement. Typically, they say, oh, this person's been released from WWE. Even when their contracts expire, we've seen situations where, like with Matt Hardy, for example, back in early 2020. Now, Matt Hardy is a lot different than Lacey Evans in the sense where he's a legend. There was a lot of speculation. Oh, would he go to AEW if he left WWE, blah, blah, blah. And obviously, he did <clears throat> within a matter of weeks. Uh, When Matt Hardy's contract expired in early March, they put out a statement saying Matt Hardy's contract with WWE, they didn't say wasn't renewed, but they said um, that he was gone from WWE, it expired, we wish him all the best in his future endeavors, blah blah blah. Again, Matt Hardy, a legend, they probably did that to address the elephant in the room, whether he was going to AEW or not, just to make it clear that he was no longer with the company. There were people like Roderick Strong, whose contract seemingly expired at some point last year, and then ended up in AEW, or maybe earlier this year, rather. Could have been late last year, we still don't know the exact timetable on that, I don't think. I'm not sure if that was ever cleared up by Roderick Strong himself or others, but he ended up in AEW just earlier this year, after a year of inactivity, he was injured, I think, for a while. might have just been a K-Fib injury, I'm not exactly sure, but... You know, he disappeared from WWE. We didn't see him again in NXT before popping up in AEW earlier this year. So people's contracts can expire and they can show up elsewhere. Lacey Evans was... The only reason why we found out about Lacey Evans's contract expiring was because of Lacey Evans herself. And again, it wasn't exactly clear what exactly she was indicating at until we got the official report from Meltzer or another saying that she is indeed gone from WWE. Because sometimes when the talents say that on their Twitter, that can mean a million different things. Is it a storyline? Is she talking about something else? Was she just bullshitting? We've seen this same song and dance before, so I am skeptical. I apologize, but I am skeptical sometimes when it comes to this stuff. But all signs now indicate that Lacey Evans is officially gone from WWE. So here are my thoughts. Lacey Evans, as I tweeted last night, um, when I kind of I haven't really talked about it too much on on Twitter in the last couple of days. First, you know, since first seeing the story develop, that she was probably on her way out of WWE. She was called up way too soon, back in late 2018. Now I don't know exactly when she was hired by WWE. I remember seeing her on episodes of NXT in 2017 and 2018. The problem is that in that year-and-a-half, two-year-long period, she wasn't really anyone of note at all. She was brought in as an enhancement talent. She may have won one or two matches, maybe, but she was never focused on... I'm not even really sure if she was using the name Lacey Evans at that point. She was using her real name, I think, at that point in 2017. Macy Estrella, um, Australia, I'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced, but the non-Lacey Evans name. She was using her real name for a little while there. They gave her the Lacey Evans name, and they called her up to the main roster randomly in late 2018. Did not make her debut until early 2019. It was part of that crop of competitors where it was like Heavy Machinery, EC3, Nikki Cross, there may have been... Oh, Lars Sullivan, remember him? And Lacey Evans. And most of... I mean, Lars Sullivan had been around for a while. That one kind of made sense. And he was already on his way up to the main roster anyway. Lacey Evans never did anything of note in NXT whatsoever. So to call her up when they did, it just seemed like she wasn't ready from a in-ring standpoint, from a character standpoint. Now, to her credit, which I also tweeted last night, she did the character stuff extremely well. She came in as the, you know, old-school, you know, feminine character in early 2019. The sassy southern belle is what she was calling herself. And she played that role really, really well. And she wasn't exactly bad in the ring either. Now, granted, she had a great dance partner from out of the gate. Right after WrestleMania, she was the first feud for the undisputed women's champion, Becky Lynch. When Becky Lynch was at the peak of her popularity in early 2019, her first feud coming out of WrestleMania, whether people thought it was disappointing or not, it was a big opportunity for Lacey Evans. Now, whether she lived up to that opportunity or not is debatable. I think she did. Now... As I also tweeted last night, Lacey Evans in the ring was never as good as most of the women they had on the roster even then and even now as well. With all the women they've brought back, there are a lot of women I would rather see built up and given opportunities to than Lacey Evans. Lacey Evans, the one thing you can't say was that she was not given opportunities. She was. And she, to her credit, did not squander every single one of them. Now, personal views aside from her end, because that was the one thing I think a lot of people got on her on in the last, if that makes sense, in the last year or so were her own personal views and shit that she's tweeted and put on her Instagram and whatnot. I mean, I have my own thoughts on that as, just as far as how dumb some of those views can be, at least in my own opinion. And if you don't like her for that reason, that's perfectly understandable. I'm just talking from an on-air standpoint. I'm not thinking the entire WWE universe saw those posts and the stuff that she was putting on social media and thought to themselves, well, I'm not going to cheer for this woman anymore. I'm not going to care for this woman anymore because of how she because of reviews on this or that or whatever it might be, I think it came to a point in the last year where it was clear that there was nothing more they could do with her. They tried turning her heel and babyface many times over. And at least on two occasions, I thought WWE themselves dropped the ball. But I'm also not going to sit here and say that WWE lost this massive, what could have been talent in Lacey Evans. I really don't think it makes much of a difference. Uh, I'm not, we also don't know yet if this was WWE's choice or if this was her choice. If her contract expired, she opted not to renew, Or, which is rare nowadays. WWE seems to renew everyone, whether they want them around or not. This has been the case for a very long time now. There have been instances in the last couple of years where you know, contracts expire, they don't renew them. Typically, they just release people, um, but they could be taking the AEW route where... It's not exactly a release, but when their contract comes up and they don't renew it, people don't call it release because it's not a release, technically. But they just don't want them in the company anymore, so they're really just not bringing them back. So it is a release in a different way. When I hear release, I think they're still under contract, they have time left in their deal, and WWE or AEW got rid of them. AEW does not release a lot of talent, we know this. Uh, WWE has not released a lot of talent since Triple H came back into the fold about a year ago they have released people nigel mcginnis being one of them jimmy smith being one of them from the commentary teams last year from a talent perspective there really aren't a lot of talent that have left the company because they were released they may have left the company on their own terms contracts expired this may have been one of those cases wwe for all intents and purposes may have wanted to re-sign lacey evans and in what world would they have wanted to have i'm not really sure what value she brings to wwe at this current point Again, she served. She has a great background. It was a great story that they incorporated into her character about a year and a half ago. I still remember coming out of WrestleMania 38, it would have been, about a year and a half, a year and a half ago, in the spring of uh, 2022, it would have been, that they brought her back as a babyface. She was gone for a year. She had another kid. She disappeared from television at the perfect time in early 2021 because, again, she was getting pushed around that time at the time she got pregnant in early 2021, But it was in that fucking awful feud with Charlotte Flair over the Raw Women's Championship. And the whole, oh, I may have had a kid with Ric Flair and we're having an affair with your father, Charlotte, blah, blah, blah. Just terrible television. And that was still in the Thunderdome era as well, so people weren't there to either not give a shit or boo it or whatever and give it the proper reaction it deserved because it was complete crap. So she got pregnant at the perfect time because, again, she probably would have won the Women's Championship. I think that was even the report at the time. She was supposed to face Asuka for the Raw Women's Championship at the Elimination... I think it was either Elimination Chamber or Fastlane. And then she got pregnant, the whole thing was dropped, and we never went back to it, which is, again, no complaints on my end. But that was probably her one opportunity where WWE was actually going to put the championship on her And at that point, it would not have made sense because then we would have been deprived of Rhea and Asuka at WrestleMania where Rhea won the Raw Women's Championship instead. So thank God that happened. But again, she came back in 2022 about a year later as a babyface. And it's not like they haven't tried that before. They did. They tried it back in, what was it, late 2019? She got drafted to SmackDown and she was a babyface around then as well. And she'd only been on the main roster for about six months, but it became clear after a while, okay, she lost to Becky multiple times. She even made the event at a pay-per-view. Lacey Evans, no matter what you thought of her WWE run, she can claim that she headlined a WWE pay-per-view alongside Baron Corbin, of all people, against Seth and Becky at that Extreme Rules show, I think it was, back in 2019 for the, I think it was a winner-take-all match for the Universal Championship and the Raw Women's Championship. But anyway, she feuded with uh, Natalia for a while and whatever. But they tried her out as a babyface in 2019 and 2022. And honestly, both times, I thought she was getting over perfectly well. I mean, it really was not her fault at that point. In 2019, they gave her all the momentum in the world. That was back when we still had fans. They gave her the match against Bailey at the Royal Rumble. Maybe they got cold feet because the match wasn't really that good. Bailey retained, and Lacey Evans was never again considered a challenger for a championship up until 2020 really ever, I was going to say. I mean, again, they turned her heel in 2020, or soon after in twenty nine or 2020, I think it would have been. 2022, they try her again as a baby face. They incorporate her actual story where she was in the Marines and she served and all this other sort of stuff, and her parents were, like, abusive and It kind of felt like they were capitalizing on that and exploiting her story. That's the word, exploiting. I always forget the word, but it felt like they were exploiting her story, exploiting her trauma, and putting it on television. And again, at least for a little while, it worked. They were doing the vignettes, and I thought they were really well done. It helped us kind of give, it it gave us a view of who the real Lacey Evans was, for the most part. Not the entire view of Lacey Evans and some of the shit that I said earlier that she was posting on social media, but... It gave us a reason to care about her again and gave us a reason to cheer her. And that was back when Vince McMahon was still in charge. It was so fucking bizarre because it really felt like initially that they were going to use her to become a, they were going to make her a breakout baby face, which would have been great. A fresh face in that women's division uh, title picture on SmackDown Raw, whatever it was going to be. But they, that was, this is the one opportunity again in 2019 that kind of ruined her baby face momentum as well. This instance, more than any other in her career, was where WWE really fucked up any momentum that they had with her. In the sense that they put her on Raw, they had her switch brands, and apparently the plan the whole time was to turn her heel. Was to endear her to the audience and then use that as a way to turn her heel. Which makes absolutely no sense. I remember reading those reports and thinking that is beyond fucking dumb, but they went in that direction anyway. They did it anyway. Anyway. And it didn't cause people to boo her. It just caused people to go back to not caring about Lacey Evans. Again, I'm not saying WWE completely missed the boat with Lacey Evans and they missed out on their chance to have a multi-time women's champion and whatnot. I'm just saying like, it felt like at that time when there really weren't a lot of fresh uh, faces rather in the title picture, you had Lacey Evans, who isn't great in the ring, but the character stuff and what they were doing with her seemed to be working. She got great reactions when she did come out. And then it became evident that they were exploiting what they were, you know, her whole story and trauma and whatnot. And then she was kind of putting a heel spin on it while also parading out there as a babyface. I remember it seemed like she was going to win Money in the Bank last year. It was over 4th of of July weekend. She was on the show a lot. She was off the show for like a fucking month and then came back. Again, they did everything wrong with Lacey Evans by having her switch brands constantly go back and forth between being a babyface and a heel. And then she lost anyway, and that was pretty much it. And then Triple H took over, he lost complete interest in Lacey Evans, and I don't exactly blame him. I mean, (laughs) she was in NXT at one point, but it's not like, you gotta remember, Lacey Evans was not someone that that he was focusing on at that time in that NXT women's division, because there were women that were better than her. Which is also why they were not focusing on her last summer, because there were women that were better than her. He did not care about using her story to get her over, because again, they tried that and they completely messed it up. I'm not going to say it didn't work because they took that route and they completely messed it up. That to me was their last chance. So when they tried to repackage her earlier this year with like the Sar- Sergeant Slaughter S gimmick, that to me was the final nail in the coffin. That was never going to work. It was dumb. I was there for the, some of those matches where they used her in squashes to put, you know, they, they put some uh they put her over some people over like local athletes and stuff. Never really led to anything. They brought her back at a time where They were already on the road to WrestleMania. They already had other plans for other people. She wasn't on the card, I don't think. It was a random time to bring her back. The crowds did not fucking care. And the whole thing with Sgt. Slaughter happened online, which, again, isn't really her fault, because she actually served. Sgt. Slaughter did not. He accused her of stealing his gimmick, which I'm sure it's not her fault. I'm sure it was more of a WWE issue. She got into it a couple times on Twitter with the daughter of Sgt. Slaughter. Just completely ridiculous stuff. All of this to say, WWE is not missing out on a major talent in Lacey Evans. It is a bummer to see her go in the sense where I feel like she could have had some success if they booked her better at certain times. But she was also not this exceptional talent in the same way that Sasha Banks was, or a lot of the women they have currently on their roster are, but they have not used them in the right way. I think Meachin, Tegan Knox, Candice, Piper Niven are all better in the ring than her. Now, she, to her credit, like I said earlier, she had a great character. And she got that character over both as a heel and as a babyface at various points in her career. She accomplished very little. I'm not even sure if she ever won a championship. She may have been a former 24-7 champion. If not, she never won a title. She was never tag team champion, Raw Women's Champion, SmackDown, NXT Women's Champion. She never won any of those championships. She could have if they booked her better. But I'm not sitting here now thinking that WWE dropped the ball on Lacey Evans so many times. They did a couple times. But not enough times for really it to feel like they missed out on a major talent. They have enough talent as it is. Hopefully this does not open the, you know open a spot up for someone to get called up and not be used. Because we've seen that many times already. Indy Hartwell wrestled on Raw this week. First time her singles match on Raw. She's, she's been cleared for a while, I would think. Because she was in that tag team turmoil match like a month and a half ago. So it's not like she's still hurt, I don't think. Maybe she was, I don't know. But only just now wrestling her first singles match on Raw... And she's been on the main roster for fucking four months. I mean, that just doesn't make much sense. Tegan Nox has yet to wrestle a single singles match on Raw since being drafted from SmackDown. They have Emma as well. I mean, there's a lot of women on both shows they are doing absolutely nothing with. Lacey Evans was one of those women, at this point, I just did not care. She was one of those people where, whether she was released and they opted not to renew her contract, or she just wanted to leave on her own, there was nothing more they could do with her. As far as where she goes from here, I honestly don't really know. To me, it seems like... Lacey Evans comes across to me as a WWE or bust type of person, where if she's not wrestling in WWE, she probably doesn't have much interest in wrestling anywhere else. Mandy Rose also comes across that way to me, not in a bad way, because I, I do feel like Mandy Rose will be back at some point. And Mandy Rose, to me, had a lot more potential when she got fired for a very different... I mean, she was, she was actually fired. Lacey Evans was not fired, um, by the definition of the word. Mandy Rhodes is a much had a much higher ceiling. or Did I say Mandy Rhodes? Mandy Rose had a much higher ceiling when she was let go late last year following the success of her NXT run and whatnot. Lacey Evans did not. She really had nothing going for her up until her departure earlier this week. Mandy Rose did. Mandy Rose should be back at some point. They should bring her back eventually if she wants to come back. I don't know if I see Lacey Evans anywhere else. I mean, she really should not go to AEW. They have enough women as it is, and she does not come close to being the best of that bunch maybe an impact I could see her maybe going to impact NWA might be more up her alley in terms of the type of people they bring in anyway I mean they got fucking Tyrus as their world champion they got a great collection of talent over there I say that sarcastically. NWA does have some great people, but some of the people they have on those shows are just highly questionable. Lacey Evans might fit in right in the NWA, to be completely honest with you. Also, the old-school character and having served and whatnot, I mean, that might fit in like a fucking glove in that NXT women's division, and that rather NWA women's division. Maybe she's the one to dethrone Camille. Coming up this weekend, the end of, or next weekend, at the NWA 75 pay-per-view. I know Sean Rossap said that on Twitter. Uh, Camille already has an opponent in Natalia Markova, who is also better than Lacey Evans. But anyway, I kid. I could see her maybe going to Impact. Honestly, NWA, joking or not, might be the best possible fit for her. But my prediction guess at the end of the day is that she's probably not going to be wrestling at all. She has a lot of other, I would assume, avenues of uh, financial success, and she could start her own OnlyFans and stuff, which she may have been already doing. I had seen people talking about that. But she can either start up that or just do something completely different. Again, she has a lot of, Lacey Evans seems to be a smart woman in this, I mean, in some ways maybe not, based on some of the stuff she was posting, like we said, Um, but I could certainly see her being successful in other avenues and doing other stuff non-wrestling related and and being successful there. So she probably doesn't necessarily have to go to an Impact or an NWA or even continue wrestling, period. This might have been it for her in the ring, which, if it was, she didn't have a completely offer run in WWE, she did last... Four and a half years in the main roster. She was in the WWE system for five, six, seven years. She was there for quite a while. Not a lot of success to her name, but she was around for a long time where she did make a little bit of an impact. Again, she got consistent television time for most of her career, even having a kid and coming back, which is also commendable. Um, She should be, uh, you know, uh, commended for that. But at the same time, there are other women at this point that I would like to see featured over Lacey Evans. So her leaving, to me, is not the biggest blow to that WWE women's division. We move on to Raw now for Monday night. We open up the show with the Judgment Day. J.D. McDonough confronting the group and kind of saying, hey, Finn said this, this is why he's not out there. So they're teasing more tension between Finn Balor and the rest of Judgment Day. Finn Balor is the one lately that has been taking all the losses. I think it was reported this week, actually, that he has like a fucking 20% win, win percentage on his record. In, uh, maybe singles matches could have been tag team as well, I'm not sure. The bottom line is that Finn Balor has not won a lot of matches in 2023. So they could be indicating, and and he also lost on this show as well. He lost last week in a tag team match. He lost to Seth Rollins at SummerSlam. He got pinned for the third time in recent weeks in this main event on this show against Cody Rhodes in the main event, which we'll get to later on. But are they slipping JD McDonough in there for Damian Priest? I don't know if Finn Balor is the one to break away from Judgment Day. Finn Balor is perfectly cast right now as a heel. He's not a main event threat anymore, but I think he is in his element as a member of Judgment Day, whereas Damian Priest has also benefited a lot from Judgment Day. I mean, he's the fucking Mr. Money in the Bank as we speak right now. At the same time, I feel like he can break off as a baby face, and there's more untapped potential there. Whereas with Finn Balor, we've seen Balor as a babyface for pretty much the entirety of his WWE run. And it's, it's, it's time to, you know, focus on fresher faces. I know Damian Priest is not that much younger than Finn Balor. Finn Balor might be 41. Damian Priest is 40, I think, or 41 as well. It's not like he's 23 years old, but Damian Priest hasn't had a lot of breakout babyface success. He did in 2021, and then they completely dropped the ball on it. He can go back to that. He can split away from the group, and it's perfectly fine. Substituting him with JD McDonough, though, to me, isn't the best idea, and I know I'm not the only one who feels that way, because McDonough isn't a big guy. He's very talented. We saw that in his match here with Sami Zayn, which he lost, which was fine. A great opener, I thought. A very well-wrestled opener. But he's not the biggest guy. He's a raw, He's around the same size as Balor and around the same size as um, Dominic Mysterio as well. Damian is kind of like the muscle of the group. He's the heavy of Judgment Day. So it kind of messes up that dynamic. I mean, you could say, obviously, Rhea is the muscle as well. She's, she can take it to pretty much any guy on the roster. But Damian just brings a different dynamic to the group. He is also bigger than Rhea Ripley. It's not like Rhea Ripley is Nia Jax. I mean, Damian Priest is easily the biggest person in that group, height-wise and whatnot. So, taking him out, putting McDonough in, I'm still not yet completely sold on, but it looks like they might be headed in that direction. Uh, we got more progression in the Intercontinental Championship, scene. Chad Gable beating Giovanni Vinci in singles competition. A nice match while it lasted, didn't get a ton of time, but what we got from them was good. And then immediately after that, Gunter in non-title action against Otis, beating him. We did find out the Intercontinental Championship will be defended next week between Gunter and Gable. Now, the question is Does WWE have Gunther win and extend the longest reign ever for the Intercontinental Championship by Gunther, or do they interrupt it next week and give the reign to, or give the championship to Gable, give the gold to Gable? I love Gable. I do. I honestly would not be opposed to him being the one to dethrone Gunther ultimately as the Intercontinental Champion. It should not happen next week. I'm honestly kind of surprised they're doing it next week and not waiting until the payback pay-per-view when it's mere days out from Gunter breaking the record. There has to be a reason why they're doing this. Either this match next Monday ends in a not no-contest or a DQ or a countout or whatever, which I don't know if we've seen that with Gunter at all. Um, Gunter has not been pinned yet on the main roster since getting called up last year, but, I mean, he's he's lost tag-team matches. He hasn't been pinned in said matches, but he's lost tag-team matches. I don't think Gunter... Has he lost matches by DQ? I'm trying to think. At least in his championship defenses, he has not lost any of those matches by DQ. I I think that's a fact. All the matches with Sheamus, Drew, Braun, Nakamura, Moss, Ricochet, um, Woods, Riddle, everyone that he's beaten so far, he is beaten by pinfall or submission or whatever. I don't think he has won any of those matches or lost any of those matches by Countout or DQ. So doing that next week would be weird, But I would like to see more from this feud. It would have been nice to see Gable in serious mode, dropping the comedy stuff for a change. That was not the case, uh, clearly, because he kind of cut more of the shoosh and thank you promo on Monday, which was fine. The crowd's behind him, which is great. I wanted to see more of the Gable that we got after the four-way last week, where he celebrated with his son uh, around ringside. I want to see more family man Gable talking about what winning the Intercontinental Championship means to him. We did not get that this week, and that's fine. I'm just surprised they're doing the match next week on the same show seemingly where they're doing Becky and Trish in the Steel Cage match. More on that later. Uh, it's not like next week is, the f- I don't think anyway, the first Monday of Monday Night Football and they really load it up as the season premiere of Monday Night Raw, which they do every year. I don't think that's next week, so I'm kind of surprised they're doing that on next week's show. Uh, we'll see what happens. I'm looking forward to the match, though. It should be good. Matt Riddle was around looking for a new tag team partner. Uh, Randy Orton's still out. So he was set to take on the Viking Raiders with a mystery partner, and he was looking for a partner. Now, they showed a segment from earlier in the day with Riddle and McIntyre, and Riddle attempted to convince McIntyre to team with him, and McIntyre was hesitant, and they showed Riddle, you know, in in real time, going into the ring for his tag team match against the Viking Raiders. Riddle came out first, and then the Raiders, and then Riddle's partner. So it wasn't even really in order. It kind of looked like at one point it was going to be Riddle against the Raiders two-on-one. Um, but they showed that graphic, and McIntyre didn't get this resounding babyface reaction, because I think some people saw that graphic, whether they were paying attention to that Drew McIntyre backstage segment or not, which they had to do, by the way. they didn't do that backstage segment, everyone would have assumed it. Some people probably did assume that Randy Orton was coming back, because they saw that graphic thinking, oh, hopefully that means Randy's coming back. If they didn't do that segment with Drew and Riddle beforehand... People would be thinking, oh, well, it's got to be Drew, and then it's, or it's got to be Randy, and then it's Drew, and people are disappointed. They were probably disappointed anyway, but it probably wasn't as many people as it would have been if they just did not show that segment at all. Um, but they had a good match with the Viking Raiders, winning said match, and it's not completely random that Riddle and McIntyre would be allies temporarily. They were on the same side against Imperium. They were on the same page against them, beating that team a couple times, heading into SummerSlam, So because Riddle had issues with Imperium as well. I thought they would go back to McIntyre and and Gunter for the championship. I'm not opposed to them, you know, moving on in a different direction with Gunter and Gable. Gunter and Gable they might be doing next week, and then McIntyre goes right back after Gunter in time for payback. That is very possible. That is very possible. I hope that's not the case. In a way, it would be nice if they ran it back just because that SummerSlam match was good, but I know they could do better, and I think they could have an even better match, um... I think they can have an even better match at some point, you know, down the road. Ken McIntyre and Gunter with a better crowd, more time and whatnot. But anyway, where is this leading with Riddle and McIntyre is the question. A heel turn could be it. My only point, though, why I don't think it's leading to a heel turn for Drew is that Drew just did an interview, I forgot with you, not too long ago, talking about why he's hesitant about turning heel. And he kind of echoed the same sentiments that were in that report, I think from Fightful a couple of months ago, or from PW Insider. And Drew did not completely shit on those reports. Triple H kind of did at WrestleMania saying, oh, you know, we laugh at them all the time. Drew went on to say in a different interview that there were some elements of those reports that were true and other elements that weren't true. The money thing could be true. It probably is. As of right now, we don't know if he's re-signed with WWE. It's looking like he hasn't as of right now, which is why he did not win the Intercontinental Championship. Even if he did re-sign, hopefully they wouldn't put the championship on Drew before they could have Gunter break the record. Um, But anyway... It sounds like that part of the the report from earlier this year, where indicated that McIntyre did not want to come back as a heel unless it made sense, was true. Because he said that in an interview not too long ago, saying that, you know, I love the Be a Star stuff and the, you know, Special Olympics stuff and that partnership and that alliance that WWE has with Special Olympics and other, you know, organizations. I love that so much. I would not want to turn heel and not be able to partake in that sort of stuff because that sort of stuff means a lot to me, he said. In so many words. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But, you know, it sounds like it would really have to make sense for him to go heel. Is this a situation where it makes sense for him to go heel? Yeah, it does. Because he'd be annoyed by Riddle more than Orton was. Orton was able to coexist with Riddle over time, and they became an amazing team. McIntyre may not have that that same level of tolerance for Matt Riddle and turn on him before they can really gel as a team. And that would be perfectly fine. Raw needs more credible heels. Uh, you know, L.A. Knight's on the show now working with The Miz. The Miz is not a credible heel. Um, who else does Raw even have? Gunter is one, but he's currently at the Intercontinental Championship level. They need more heels. Balor has now lost to Rollins twice. They turn Nakamura, but turning McIntyre could be um, a great way to kind of get him one step closer to that World Championship contention. Working with Rollins for the world title... They had a match a couple of years ago on pay-per-view, did McIntyre and Rollins, but it was Rollins as the heel and McIntyre as the face. Turn McIntyre heel and have that be the fall program over the World Championship. Nakamura feels like a temporary challenger before they get to Rollins and Cody at some point down the road. Probably Survivor Series. Um, But anyway, we'll see where this goes, A McIntyre heel turn would not be the worst thing. I just don't know if you would want to, that's the question. I mentioned Indy Hartwell earlier while discussing Lacey Evans. She had a match on the show, her first singles match since being drafted to Raw. She's wrestled on Raw before on her own. Um, actually, in the early days of COVID, in the first couple of weeks, actually. I'm pretty sure she had a match on Raw against Sheena Baszler, and uh, she lost. That was r- like soon after she was hired. I don't even know if she was on NXT TV yet at that point. Until she, she didn't join the way until later on. So, yeah, she wasn't she had just been signed by WWE a couple months earlier, and they used her as an enhancement talent on Raw. So, not her first match on Raw, but her first match on Raw in front of a capacity crowd on her own. She wrestled the Women's World Champion Rhea Ripley in non-title action. And, listen, I know Rhea Ripley's being built up right now for a championship clash with Raquel Rodriguez. Probably set to take place at Payback, I would hope. Candice LeRae is the next sacrificial lamb. I get what they're going for. It would have been nice to see Hartwell be more competitive with Ripley. It's all about Ripley right now. I get it. She's the dominant force. They want to build her up. I get it. It would have been nice that this was more than a squash. This felt like Indy could have been any other jobber in that division. The match went all of a few minutes. She barely got any offense in, and Rio won decisively. I mean, Indy is the same woman who, mere months ago, was the NXT Women's Champion, I mean, they even said that in the video package. They did a video package for her. It's not like she was just out there cold with no entrance. She got an entrance. She got a video package, which is great. She gained nothing from this match. Being in there with the Women's World Champion was not enough because she was completely dominated by the current champion. She gained nothing in defeat. Great to see her on the show. Have no idea what the fuck happened in that wave reunion they were seemingly teasing a couple of months ago. It, it, it kind of seems like from what peop, uh, what people have said that Vince McMahon poo-pooed that idea, and we're not going to be getting the way on on WWE TV anymore going forward, which is a bummer. Not that I was exactly excited for it, but at the same time, it would have given Gargano and LaRay and Hartwell and even Loomis something to do. We could still see it, but Gargano, I I don't think he's hurt. I have no idea where he is. Anyway, I I was disappointed by this match more than most just because I think Hartwell is very good. She could have really gone in there and not had a 20-minute classic with Rhea, but... Put it more of a fight than she did. She was basically killed for three minutes and then put away like she was any other jabroni. So I was disappointed by that. One of the big hooks going into the show this week was whether Nakamura would explain his actions for why he portrayed Seth Rollins at the end of Raw last Monday night. And he did in Japanese. So the crowd didn't really know how to react with anything other than what chance, which they didn't do initially, which I was proud of them for. This crowd sucked on Monday, by the way. They were in Winnipeg, uh, Winnipeg, you idiot, on Monday night. And the crowd was completely quiet for most of the show. Now, to their credit, in their defense, there wasn't a lot to get excited about. That being said, um, they could have been more alive at certain points. But they didn't respond to the what chance until about halfway through his Japanese explanation for why he attacked Seth Rollins. I think he actually did explain himself in that promo with subtitles that I saw on Twitter. But if we never really found out on the show itself, then it doesn't really matter. But he then went on to say, in English, I want the World Championship, so... Kind of a lame, simple explanation. But again, I think he said in the Japanese part of his promo that he was tired of getting frustrated and losing matches and whatnot. Because again, Nakamura is a guy for the last couple of months. They brought him back in the spring. He beat Karrion Cross. He beat Mad Cat Moss. He beat a couple people. But then he just kept losing. He came to Raw and lost a lot of matches. He's lost to Finn Balor. He's lost to Damian Priest. He lost to Bronson Reed a couple of times. He's lost a handful of matches. He lost to Money in the Bank. He lost the Battle Royal at SummerSlam. He's lost a handful of matches. So they need to do more, though, is the issue to make people think that he has a legitimate shot of beating Rollins for that championship, probably a payback. So Rollins accepted his World Heavyweight Championship challenge here, but they didn't say when it was, which is odd because payback's coming up not next weekend, not this weekend, but the weekend after that. So it's not this weekend, but it is weird. The pay-per-view's in two weeks, and we don't know a single match for that show yet. It doesn't have even a main event. It's very likely will be headlined by Rollins and... I, I thought originally it'd be headlined by Uso versus Uso, but with Jey Uso quitting, that probably won't be the case. So I spoke more about the Jey Uso situation in my SmackDown audio review last week on the YouTube channel. Don't really discuss SmackDown here, because by the time this goes up, it'll be outdated with SmackDown airing tomorrow, as we speak right now. But with Uso versus Uso possibly not happening at payback, and they might be saving that until WrestleMania, it would make more sense... Uh, for them to then do Rollins and Nakamura as the main event for that payback pay-per-view. Rollins can seemingly only main event pay-per-views when Roman Reigns is not there. Roman Reigns has headlined the last three pay-per-views, Money in the Bank, Night of Champions, and SummerSlam. Rollins was on all three of those shows in World Heavyweight Championship matches, and not a single one of them was the main event. That needs to change with payback. If they really want to make that championship mean something and feel on the level of that Undisputed Championship they can't but they can at least try by putting it on last on at least one show coming up that Roman Reigns is not on having Uso versus Uso which feels like the real attraction because there's an actual story storyline there um that's one thing but there's no stakes there it seems like and i know there were You know, rumors of Rikishi maybe being the special guest referee, and that's fine and all, but they really have to close the show with a fucking World WWE Championship match, no matter how predictable it is. They really want to make that championship feel legitimate, incredible, and prestigious. So, Nakamura did whisper something to Rollins at the end of this segment. We don't know what he said, and now they're teasing that we'll find out on Monday's Raw. So, maybe he said something about Becky Lynch, he talked shit about his wife, Rollins was taken aback. He wasn't expecting that from Nakamura, and Nakamura then laid him out, so we never found out what it was. We might find out coming up on Raw this week. I mentioned Becky versus Trish earlier. It was weird, because this did not go on last, and listen, they didn't do this in Canada for the sake of doing it in Canada. Oh, Trish is from Canada, so we have to blow off the feud here. This was not the blow off to the feud. They did it here, because they didn't want to do it at SummerSlam, because they had other, you know, priorities with Ronda and Shayna. Shayna has, you know, she was on Raw last week. She was not on Raw this week, I don't think. So they didn't really follow up on her win over Ronda this week or the win over Zoe Stark. She was not on the show. In retrospect, first of all, this was not a great match. But in retrospect, they probably should have just put this in the spot that Sheena and Ronda had. I can't imagine the crowd would have been any quieter than they were for Sheena and Ronda, which was... You could have heard a fucking pin drop in that arena. I was there, I can tell you. Becky and Trish, they probably would have been a little bit louder for, and again... If they did this dumb finish, we would have shit on it. But at least Becky Lynch would have been on the show. I know Ronda Rousey's swan song, they want to have it be on pay-per-view. That was a clean finish. At the same time, I mean, they could have come up with something else here to protect both women. The double countout came across as fucking lame. It was a lame finish. The crowd was not happy with it. The match wasn't even that great anyway. But even in retrospect, even with this finish, I still probably would have put this on pay-per-view over Sheena and Ronda, because more people, I think, cared about this than that, and this just had more star power, and this crowd sucked. Maybe that crowd in Detroit would have been louder for Becky and Trish than this Winnipeg crowd was for their own Canadian hero, Tristratus. They just did not care. It was weird. So it ended in a double countout, and we found out soon. The weird thing was, before we found out that it was going to be a steel cage match, I think next week in Raw between the two women, they brawled in the concourse of the arena, which was cool. It put more heat in the match and kind of Caused the crowd to wake up a little bit. It was a nice visual. The weird thing was that they showed Zoe Stark attacking Becky. She was wearing a disguise. The match was over. Why does it like she's not banned from the arena? She's not going to get fired from WWE if she attacks Becky. She was banned from ringside during the match. This wasn't the match. So that just didn't make any sense. But Adam Pierce said, listen, we're going to settle this once and for all. I think again next week, steel cage match between Becky and Trish, which will hopefully end this rivalry once and for all. And I hate saying that because I have said this before, I appreciate WWE's attempt to keep Becky in non-title stories, even do a non-title story at all, for the women outside of the title picture, keep her busy, as opposed to Charlotte, you know, who always comes back and is always in the championship picture. With Becky, they've gone to great lengths to keep her out of the title picture for about a year now. She did the damage control stuff, and that transitioned seamlessly into the Trish feud right after WrestleMania. That's great. The problem... Um, is that these storylines just have not really been interesting, and Becky still kind of feels like she's missing something. It kind of felt like she had it when she was a heel. I didn't love the heel run, because I felt like she was a natural babyface, and she is. But ever since she came back as a babyface last year, it feels like she's been missing something. I know she's never going to reach the same height that she was at five years ago, when she first went heel and then became a breakout babyface and whatever. She'll never reach that same level of stardom again. I get that. But... It's not what they're doing with her, because, again, she's all over the show. She has matches almost every week. She is over, but it just feels like she's kind of repeating the same material from before or doing something else that's not exactly working. It's weird. She doesn't have that same edge to her that she did five years ago. The popularity thing is what it is. She's set in stone at this point. She's cemented her place in history. She's okay on that front. But in terms of, like, her character, she just doesn't have the same edge that she did uh, even a few years ago, so maybe she can, maybe they can improve upon that with her going into her next feud. And like I mentioned earlier, Cody Rhodes, Finn Balor headlining the show, Cody Rhodes beating Balor, and the Judgment Day standing tall afterward. Anyway, laying out Rhodes, laying out Sami Zayn, uh, Kevin Owens still out injured. So uh, we'll see where this goes, and. Uh... Maybe Rhodes. I thought Rhodes and Balor might be the pay-per-view match, but evidently not. I thought Cody Rhodes might be involved in the World Heavyweight Championship match, but again, evidently not, because he was not involved with Rollins or Nakamura on this show. So clearly they're saving Cody and Rollins for another time. Probably Survivor Series, if I had to take a guess. And that's fine. What does Cody do in the meantime is the question. Again, I thought him and Balor would be a fine feud, but we've already gotten the match three times already on Raw this year, and Cody's won every fucking time. So I'm not really sure what there is more to do there. Uh, People have said maybe Balor and Priest for the Money in the Bank briefcase. I don't like the briefcase being fought over and it feels too soon for Balor and Priest. I mean, again, maybe. But again, that doesn't answer my question of what do you do with Cody in the meantime? He already faced Dominic. He's beaten Balor. He's already beaten Priest as well. So I'm not really sure what more you do with Cody. Maybe it's Cody and Sammy. Maybe Kevin Owens is back in time for payback. I don't think so. But maybe in the meantime, it's just Cody and Sammy against Balor and Priest at payback. And maybe that leads to more dissension between Balor and Priest. And all it is, week after week, oh, Judgment Day has tension, and then they stand tall. It's the same story week after week. They will have to move it forward very soon to avoid it getting old if it's not already. And uh, maybe we'll see that at payback with Rhodes and Sammy beating Judgment Day, and then at that point, Balor snaps on Priest, and they kick him out of the group, or vice versa. Maybe they don't kick Balor out of the group, but I could see Priest breaking off on his own uh, without without having to be kicked out of the group himself. So that was Raw in a nutshell for Monday night. On the AEW front, I mentioned this earlier at the the top of the show, the CM Punk drama is just completely ridiculous. It was really all that anyone was talking about on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and it's still going on now. The general gist of the story is this. Punk having people banned from the building at Collision. Punk should have no power. I would say he does have no power, but that doesn't seem evidently true. Tony Khan giving him a bit more leeway than he probably should. The guy's a talent. He's not an EVP even, even if Omega and the Bucks were doing this shit. I would still say that was stupid. If you have an issue with someone, you can have an issue with someone, but you work it out like men, and you stay on the same show. I mean, if he had an issue with Ryan Nemeth, that's fine. I mean, Nemeth had tweeted something about Punk. Punk, you know, thin skin. say what you will. He had an issue with what Nemeth said. Okay, they had a disagreement over it. They talked about it. You know, ang- uh, Punk reportedly angrily speaking to Nemeth about it or whatever. Okay, but then why is Nemeth banned from the building? That just seems stupid. Again, we don't know Punk's side of the story specifically, but it sounds like he didn't like the vibe that Nemeth was bringing to the collision taping and creating a divide among the town and whatnot. Get him out of here. He's not a part of the boys. Again, that's just fucking stupid. That's stupid. I mean, that's not Punk's call to make. We didn't hear any stories previously, not to say it hasn't happened, but we didn't hear any stories previously of people being banned from the building or being barred from Collision or Rampage or Dynamite because they weren't a team player. At that point, you just get rid of them. I'm not saying Nemeth is the most important person on the roster. I don't really give a shit about Ryan Nemeth. I'm I'm honestly kind of surprised he's still even there. And they still use him on a contractual basis as a jobber for any one of those shows. I have not seen him on an AEW show in quite some time, and I'm not complaining. But at the same time, though, you can't ban people from the building just because you don't like them. You get the fuck over it. I mean, it's already bad as it is, as we've spoken about before, that Punk has to work Collision and the Elite have to work Wednesdays on Dynamite and sometimes on Rampage because they can't coexist. And that's a Tony Khan call. Instead of, I mean, I guess apparently Punk wants to work it out and then the Elite don't want to talk to Punk. They don't want to deal with Punk. At some point, I think they will work together on television, whether they are on the same page or not. That may not come for a very long time. That might be years down the road before that eventually happens. It could be next year. It could be in a couple of months. We don't know. I think it will be a while. But the problem with Punk is this, though. I can see him wanting to work with those guys as part of an angle to make himself money. I get it. But this is where... the Banning people from the building thing is dumb. And apparently, Matt Hardy was not a victim of that, ed as had been believed at one point in one other person. Christopher Daniels apparently was. Daniels was not welcome to collision, apparently, because, again, he was one of those people involved in the brawl, at Brawl Out, at All Out last year, and he was the one to break up the brawl. And I guess Punk sees him as an elite guy. Now, Christopher Daniels is a talent relations head official in AEW. For Punk to have more say than he does, to get him booted from the arena, if that is true, again, if that's reportedly true, is fucking dumb. That is very stupid. And if his mindset, as again, as had been reported by a few different outlets, the thinking could be, not is, but the thinking could be, well, if Ace Steele isn't allowed here, my friend, who was also involved in the brawl, then Christopher Daniels shouldn't be either. If Ace Steele can't be here, then C.D. shouldn't be allowed here either. Which, again, is stupid. Did Christopher Daniels bite a guy? No! I don't think Daniels is that, you know, uh, I know he's an elite guy, he's friends with the Bucks and whatnot, but that is pretty dumb logic. If he's not friends with Punk, it feels like the only people allowed at the collision taping are either cool with Punk, friends with Punk. You're either with him or against him. It's just stupid. You can't create that environment. Tony Khan needs to... It's it's as much about Tony Khan as it is CM Punk. CM Punk is going to try to flex his muscles as far as... You know, if he knows that he can get people banned from the building and not have them welcome to the show that he's on, then he's going to do that. But why is he being allowed to do that? How does he have that sort of power? That comes down to Tony Khan. The end-all, be-all t- should be Tony Khan, the fucking president, saying, No, punk, you need to get over it. Either deal with the person, don't talk to them, don't communicate with them, share the locker room, whatever it might be. But we're not kicking anyone out of the building. The Adam Page issue was a whole other issue on Saturday at Collision. Saturday's Collision was a solid show, far from their strongest effort so far on Saturday nights. But what the only thing that people were talking about coming out of that show on Saturday going into Sunday... Were Punk's comments about Adam Page, making comments about how he doesn't sell action figures, and that's why you still see his action figures hanging up in the toy section at Walmart and whatnot or Target, whatever. I see them at Target, but they're probably at Walmart too. Um, but you know they have that, and you know he's the one that moves merchandise and ratings and whatnot. I, I, if I were Punk, I would not be talking about the ratings of anything. I mean, Punk is a draw. I don't think he's as big of a draw as he's probably making himself out to be. Unless he's just being sarcastic and playing up a character, I guess the guy's a babyface on the show, so... (laughs) I don't know. It's very weird. My whole thing with Punk is this, and I love Punk. Again, I'm glad he's back. I think he's a big part of that show. I'm happy to see him featured as the face of Collision. He makes that show more must-see than it would be without him. At the same time, though, the guy needs to keep his fucking mouth shut. He was making comments about Page here that were completely unwarranted. If he has an issue with Page or that hasn't been resolved yet, whatever... But it sounds like the report was that Punk spoke at a turn about Adam Page, maybe trying to work himself into an angle, whatever the case might be, and then he realized it came off the wrong way, was the report, so he apologized to Page. I honestly don't know whether that report is true or not. I'm not sure how the situation can be turned into a positive. Unless we find out that Page was talking a lot of shit about Punk in the last couple of weeks, and that was Punk's receipt to Page, which was kind of the case last year. Unless we find out something pretty egregious from the Page camp as far as what happened with him and why he deserved that, then Punk comes off pretty fucking poorly here. Making comments about Paige and, again, either trying to work himself into a match or getting wanting Page to acknowledge him. It was just weird. Whether he apologized or not, why not make the comments? Why not not make the comments in the first place? Like, why even say that to begin with? He started shit when there was no shit. I mean, there was shit last year. He obviously stole his unresolved bad blood with the Elite. I get it, but he's digging it back up. Just when you think it's over, it gets dug back up, this time by Punk. I'm not saying he's the sole one to blame here, at least in this specific situation. Tony Khan bears a lot of the blame as well, but Punk specifically did not need this. I mean, it was just one thing after another. I saw the Punk and Jack Perry thing. That didn't really seem like much of a story at all. That was kind of a nothing story. But, like, it started with the page comments, and then it continued with the Nemeth shit, and just, it's one thing after, oh, it was then Christopher Daniels he had barred from the building. Like, what the fuck is going on over here? He doesn't run the company. He shouldn't run the company. He's a top talent. Khan needs to put his foot down and say, no, dude, you need to get over it and deal with it, or you just can't work here. You can't just have your friends working in the same locker room as you just because you don't like it. Tough shit. It's just completely ridiculous. I'm just, like, why are we even at this point? It was just dumb. The page comments specifically were Punk's fault. I mean, it is Tony Khan's fault in the sense that he should have done something about this a long time ago, and he's just kind of separating them to kind of, you know, uh, quiet down the issues so he doesn't really have to piss off either side. At a certain point, you're going to have to piss off Punk by telling him, hey, you need to shut the fuck up. Like, Punk needs to go back through the curtain, and Tony Khan, instead of saying, oh, it's a great job, great job, great job, like we saw from him on Dynamite last night, that segment, and that skit, He needs to say, why the fuck did you say that? And maybe he did. But under no... In any of these reports that I read that. That I read that Tony Khan told Punk and we probably would have found out by now. Hey, you probably shouldn't have said that. That was pretty dumb. Whether you apologize or not, don't do that or I'm fining you or suspending you. Because that was just stupid. Because it makes the company look bad for not doing anything about it. Moving on to Dynamite from Wednesday night. Uh, Just not a great show. I honestly did not think this was a great show on Wednesday. The build to all in is all over the place, so let, let's talk about that first. The build to all in has it been botched? Is my question to everyone this week, because they're now billing it as the biggest event in wrestling history, and rightfully so. They've sold a lot of tickets, over eighty thousand. I checked the uh, records and numbers and whatnot. I mean, obviously, it's the highest, uh, you know, most attended event outside of. WWE, I know WCW and, N, uh, not NWA, uh, New Japan did that North Korea show that was covered on Dark Side of the Ring in 95. That did like 160 70,000 people each night, whatever. But like beyond that sort of stuff, WWE has the record for Mania 32, which they billed as a 101,000 and it was not 101,000. I don't know if people go off the number of 80,000, which is what I think Brandon Thurston reported, or 93,000, which is what Meltzer reported at the time. I mean, Wembley is not not even set up for 93,000, so they're not breaking that, but I I tend to believe the 80,000 Thurston, from what I've seen, seems to be pretty accurate with his numbers. So All In, by all intents and purposes, is the biggest, most attended event in wrestling history, in the modern era specifically, even including WWE including Mania 32 from what it looks like and all the other Manias that we've had in recent years. That is an amazing accomplishment for a show that up until a couple of weeks ago had no matches for a company that's only been around a couple of years that has had no shows there. That's part of the appeal as well. If they had, if they had other shows in the you know, United Kingdom before now, maybe this show wouldn't have sold as well. They probably would have done a great number regardless, but I don't know if they would have sold 80,000 tickets because that audience had already been exposed to AEW. In the near five-year existence of this company, they had yet to run a single show in, you know, overseas over in England. So that adds to the allure and the magic as well. That being said, you would never really know that from watching these Dynamite shows. Some Dynamite shows are stronger than others. I'm not debating that. The build, the Coal and MGF has been excellent. What we got from them on Wednesday, the talking segment, the, I mean, the backstage skit was fucking dumb. The, the Outback Steakhouse thing was fine. Um, that was kind of funny. And then they followed it up with, like, the, like, they were pretending to catch, you know, an Australian, some guy backstage, and pushing him into a pool. It was, that was dumb. And then it just went completely off the deep end with the Tony Khan thing. Getting Tony Khan involved in anything on these shows is the worst thing you can possibly do. First of all, because people just don't like Tony Khan anyway. It gives those fans, those anti-AEW fans, more ammo to just shit on the company. But second of all, because he's a fucking awful television character. Whether it's on Ring of Honor or TV, there's not been a single segment where we have seen Tony Khan on the show where he's come across organically or naturally. He's just an awkward guy. And that's fine, but it's just not suited for a television persona. Even in a dumb segment like that, that was just cringy. The actual segment of The Ring with Cole and MJF talking about their match at All-In and how much it means to them and MJF recounting his history... Ending up on the first All-In five years ago, his relationship with Cody Rhodes was great. I thought that was a great promo, one of MJF's better promos in recent weeks. And they built up the Aussie Open match, and they got a lot going for themselves with this MJF and Cole program. And to Tony Khan's credit, he's doing an amazing job of capitalizing on it, making sure it's a big part of the shows every single week, continuing the story, making sure Cole and MJF aren't turning on each other until at least All-In. Maybe All-Out, we'll find out. But the program so far has been perfectly handled. The problem is that the rest of the card is in fucking shambles right now. We have the Bucks and FTR competing for the tag team titles on that all-in show. Their third match. First one being at the Full Gear show in 2020. The second one being on Dynamite in Boston on the, uh, I almost said post-WrestleMania show. It was after WrestleMania, but that doesn't have to do with AEW. It was that early April 2022 edition of Dynamite that FTR beat Bucks clean to retain the Ring of Honor tag team titles. This is going to be their third match, their rubber match. And it's going to be great, no doubt about it. And it's awesome that it's happening on the biggest stage in AEW history. The problem is that they really haven't put so far any thought into the matchup. It comes together completely randomly. Again, they have that built-in history already. But FTR was busy doing other stuff on Collision. The Bucks were busy with the Elite stuff. There just wasn't a lot of build-up for it. And the problem is that in recent weeks, it's like, all right, match for All-In, we want you, that's it. I feel like we need at least one big talking segment from these two teams heading into next weekend, which we probably will not get until next Wednesday because I don't think the Bucks can appear on collision with Punk being there and whatever. We probably may not get it at all, but if we do get it, it would have to be next Wednesday on the final Dynamite before the pay-per-view to really, again, people are already excited for it, but I want a big talking segment with both teams explaining why they need to win this match, their history, why they want to win this match, the importance of the tag team titles, and everything else. We need more of that heading into all-in with the build for this matchup. But I'm at least excited for that match. Punk and Joe, to me, again, it's not random, because they do have unfinished business from years ago, but also just a couple of weeks ago as well. That's another match that kind of sells itself. The rest of the card kind of comes into question for me. We had three more matches made official on Wednesday's show. Jericho and Will Ospreay. Seemingly a non-title match. I did not know until last night, that apparently this was made official the other day, a couple days ago, that Osprey is now the IWGP United Kingdom Heavyweight Champion. It's no longer the United States Championship. They renamed it, or he renamed it the United Kingdom Championship. So, I don't think that title will be on the line, come all in. Um, That came together after Jericho accepted Don Callis' offer to join his family, and then he saw a painting of Callis that Callis had painted of him decapitating Jericho and turning on him, assuming he would say no, and then Jericho changed his mind and said, I'm not going to join you. It just made him look like an idiot. Um, And then Sammy Guevara saved Jericho from Osprey, who showed up, and uh, Takeshka. So Jericho is a babyface, I guess, even though Osprey is certainly going to be the babyface in his own country in England. Kind of weird. Kind of a waste of Osprey, in my opinion. I'd rather see Osprey work with someone else, whether it be Omega for a third time, which I don't think is really necessary. They had two matches. Osprey got his belt and win back. Did they even really need a third match, especially if Omega's going to lose again? Probably not. The matches were amazing, but they don't really need a third one. Anyway, um, it seemed like Omega was going to work with Brian Danielson, reportedly, at all in, before Danielson got hurt. That would have been amazing as well. But that's not happening. So we're getting Osprey and Jericho instead. Speaking of Omega, he had a sit-down interview on the show with Jim Ross... Uh, Pre taped earlier in the day. Essentially, what it led to was, or will, what it's going to be, is Juice Robinson, Jay White, and who is their partner? I, I don't even remember. But it's going to be Kenny Omega, Adam Page, and um, Kota Ibushi, the Golden Elite taking on Bullet Club Golds, Jay White, <clears throat> Juice Robinson, and might be Takeshka. I think it's Takeshka, actually. So that would make sense. Um, that's a six man tag team match added for All In. Now, again, I know that they want to get everyone on the show, but it's just coming at the expense of the card at this point. You look at the Stadium Stampede match. We kind of figured they would be doing a multi-man match based on what's been talked about by Meltzer, I believe, and just been what's teased on the show. We're getting a fucking 12-man Stadium Stampede match, which sounds like an absolute mess. Those were more bearable than Anarchy in the Arena to me because they are a little less... They're goofy, but they're less like extreme, and extreme isn't the problem. They just go over the top of the anarchy and the arena crap. But we're getting Stadium Stampede with Blackpool Combat Club and three partners against the Lucha Bros, Best Friends, Eddie Kingston, and Orange Cassidy. Orange Cassidy not defending the international championship on an international show is fucking stupid to me. I'm sorry. He's had a million different defenses, including on Wednesday's Dynamite, but not on the actual international show itself. Could they not just do him in Moxley or something? Or Moxley in Kingston? I love the Lucha Bros. Best friends are best friends. You don't need everyone on the show. You really don't. I mean, they've done a million different battle royals. They do that all the time on Dynamite, so you probably can't do that. Which is what WWE did with SummerSlam to get a lot of people on SummerSlam. I mean, it was a Slim Jim-sponsored matchup, so they kind of had to do it. <clears throat> but that was their way of getting a lot of people onto the SummerSlam card. This is AEW does this constantly, though. It's not a series of big culmination matches or big attractions. It is with the top of the card, MJF and Cole, you know, the Joe and Punk match and FDR in the Box are three strong top matches. But these multi-man matches are just crap. I'm sorry. Just that stadium stampede. Like, I know they're in an actual stadium now, but how does that even work? As there were pre-taped elements that, I mean, the first one took place during COVID. The second one had a live audience, but they, there were a lot of elements of it that were pre-taped and happened elsewhere in the arena. I'm just not really sure how that works and how it differs from Anarchy in the Arena that we just saw a couple of months ago at Double or Nothing. I'm just not exactly excited for that. I'm glad Eddie Kingston's back on the show, but a 12-man man? man? What the fuck is this? I mean, I don't know. I think I just expected more from this build. Maybe not, because Tony Khan really hasn't done a great job of building up his last couple of pay-per-views. He waits until the last minute, or if he doesn't, he just adds a bunch of multi-man matches, which which is exactly what he's doing with All In. And you also have All Out the following week that we know nothing about practically, aside from probably getting Miro and Powerhouse Hobbs and Allen and Luchasaurus for the TNT Championship. They're going to confirm 85% of that card after All In. I get it. I understand it. At the same time, though, that show feels like a complete afterthought. They really do not need to do All In for the sake of the Chicago crowd. They can fucking wait. They could have just done the... I mean, if they really wanted to appease Chicago, they could have just done full gear there in November. They're going to be there anyway for their Thanksgiving show, so why not just bunch it all up into one i don't know it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me so i am looking forward to the show this will be a great all-in show we talked about the ticket sales a couple of months ago here in wrestle rant radio i was more optimistic than rj was as far as how many tickets they would sell they still blew past both of our numbers and that's amazing and it's an incredible accomplishment but i wish AEW did more to make the show feel bigger it feels big when you think about it but when you watch dynamite you would never know Wednesday's show specifically was just all over the place. I mean, I'm not going to do a, a match-by-match recap as I did with Raw. It just was not a great show. Between the all-in build being all over the place, and then we had some good matches and some shitty matches. Like, Orange Cassidy and wheeler Utah for the International Championship was a very good match, much like it was a few months ago. That set up the aforementioned Stadium Stampede match. Um, the Jericho segment I just thought was illogical, and Babyface Jericho is questionable to me they're keeping him and Sammy together, which... God, can they fucking separate Sammy from Jericho for five minutes? They've been together joined to the hip since the beginning of AEW. I mean, I don't really think it's benefiting Guevara at this point. Guevara is just where he is on the card, I don't know. It's just weird. Um hopefully this means Jericho Appreciation Society is indeed over completely, and it's not just that they're reforming the group as baby faces. I don't know. I'm just not really overly invested in that. I was looking forward to seeing what Jericho's answer would be, and I was actually kind of hoping he would join Callus. Jericho should not have another faction. If he's going to be a babyface and needs to be on his own, no Guevara either. I mean, maybe they can blow that off or have them go their separate ways, but no buddies, no allies, just have Jericho on his own, putting people over. That's what he's you know, probably best at at this point. Um, Darby Allen and Nick Wayne against the Gates of Agony was over in a matter of minutes. It went to commercial, came back, it was over almost immediately. So nothing more to that match, really. The Cole and MGF segment I mentioned was awesome. The less said about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre deathmatch, the better. That was just a complete shit show, Uh, just awful television. I know that was their way of, you know, it was, uh, you know, they were sponsoring the video game. Apparently they made $100,000 off of it. They, you know, donated that money to the Maui Foundation as part of the Maui Fires or the Maui, you know, uh, that whole thing going on right now over in Hawaii. And, you know, this was the fight for the Fallen show, and all the proceeds for this show and for that matchup went towards that. That's amazing. It doesn't take away from the fact that no one will remember that when they look back at Dynamite's history, thinking, you know what, that match was worth it because it donated all the sponsorship money to Maui or whatever else was going on at that time. No one will think that. They will just go back and watch this match or see highlights from it and think, wow, that was fucking terrible television. One of the worst Dynamite matches of all time. And it made... You know, honestly, it made the Pitch Black match look like fucking, you know, Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker from WrestleMania 25. At least that was over quick, easy, it was not good, but it was, you know, short, sweet, straight to the point, whatever, from the Royal Rumble earlier this year. This was more along the lines of that, uh, great, not Grateful Dead, that's, a, that's the band, that Army of the Living Dead, or whatever that movie was, that WWE was promoting with that Lumberjack match with the fucking zombies back at Backlash 2021. That's what this reminded me of. This was not good. It was terrible television. I'm sure there was an audience for it. I was not among them. This was garbage. Um, yeah, that was awful. Baker and the Bunny was not that much better. Uh, Baker, qual. I mean, listen, to their credit, it was a typical Britt-Baker match. Just not interesting. Bunny was not winning. It was whatever. Baker qualifying for the Women's World Championship, four-way match at all-in. That's another addition to the all-in card. And that should be a good match, but again, there's no story. It's just Sheeta who just won the championship, defending against three former champions, or... Two former champions, and then Soraya, who's from England, obviously. Getting her on the show is cool, and it's awesome that she battled back from injury to come back and compete on this card. That's awesome. But there's just not, not a whole lot going on in that women's division right now. The Tony Storm character arc with her kind of going off the deep end now that she's lost the championship is cool. I'm all for that. She seems like she's having a blast with that character. The well runs dry beyond that. Baker's not interesting right now. is not overly interesting. Maybe she wins the championship. I don't know. The Baker or Baker beat the Bunny, rather. Uh, a lot of bees there. Britt Baker beat the Bunny to qualify for that four-way at All-In. House of Black attacking the Acclaimed. It seems like we're headed towards the House of Black losing the Trios t- championships to the team they already beat twice in the Acclaimed the Billy Gunn. Billy Gunn will come out of retirement. They'll go after the championships, which he's mentioned before. They'll win them. I really don't fucking care about that at all, but that's where they're going with this. Probably it all out, I would have to imagine. And then the Young Bucks beat the Guns in the main event, which was a pretty average match. And then FTR made the save afterward, and they faced off to close the show. So a pretty ho home addition to Dynamite overall. Had some great segments, especially early on. I enjoyed Cassidy and Yuta. I thought the uh, MJF and Cole match, or segment rather, was excellent. And then you have, like, the women's match, which wasn't great. Or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre death match, which was awful. And then the build for All In, which felt rushed and forced and random. I mean... Dynamite is all over the place right now. I honestly prefer Collision. Dynamite can be a great show some weeks and just a mess of a show like it was this week where they fit attempt to fit a million different things into the show and cram as much as possible in there without really letting a lot of stuff breathe. And that was the case this week. I was not a fan of Dynamite. I am looking forward to All In. We will do All In predictions here on the show next Thursday on WrestleRant Radio, hopefully with the return of Mr. Marceau, breaking down All In and all the other news and notes from WWE and AEW from throughout the week. Thank you guys for checking out the show. I appreciate it. New episodes every single week on WrestleRant.com, WrestleRantRadio.com iTunes, Stitcher for now anyway, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Amazon Music and Pandora. Rate the show, review the show, subscribe to the show, never miss new episodes every single week as I mentioned. Have an awesome one guys, I'm Graham G.S. Matthews and I'll catch your ass down the road.